0: August 8th is National Baseball Card Day. This hobby was a big part of my fan experience as a child, and it's been for generations of fans. From simple images and packs of gum to digital, motion-enabled options today, baseball cards continue to let us collect our favorite players, teams, and moments. So when did these items first come into existence? The origin story is not what you would expect, The first baseball card, today on Rounders, a history of baseball in America. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I am, as always, your host, Jeff Lambert. So on tax-free weekend every year, Topps sponsors what's known as National Baseball Card Day. It's a chance for fans both new and experienced, young and old, to discover or rediscover the hobby of baseball card collecting. In fact, this past weekend, Topps was giving away two free packs of cards to every fan at hobby shops, at Target, or at Walmart across the country. For generations, fans have collected and traded baseball cards. I remember when I was six years old, I went to my first Red Sox game at Fenway Park. And when we were there, in addition to trying out all the different foods, my dad bought me a pack of cards. It was my very first pack of baseball cards, and it was a team set for that season. I took them home, and I memorized each player, and before I knew it, I was buying three-ring binders and plastic protective pages, and new packs as much as I could. I began trading cards with friends. I remember I traded a Royce Clayton for a Mo Vaughn. I think I had a Ryan Sandberg card that I traded for a Tom Glavin and a John Smoltz. I had my Iron Man Cal Ripken card, which was untouchable. You couldn't trade for that one. And I still have it in a plastic protective case as well. They're sitting in a shoebox with hundreds of other cards that I've collected over the years. They were a way for me to celebrate both my knowledge of the sport and continual learning and just an overall love for baseball. And I know it does the same for millions of others too. So in enjoying this weekend and just thinking about baseball card collecting as a whole, I decided to ask the question, how far back do baseball cards go? And how do they compare to the ones that we're used to seeing? Let's discover together. Baseball cards, at least in the sense of pictures of people in baseball uniforms, they've been around since at least the Civil War, uh, since at least the late 1860s. There's even some evidence of early examples as far back as the 1840s. The invention of this medium, it coincided with two developments in American history. You had the rise of popularity in baseball itself in the United States, and you also had an increase in demand for this new technology called photographs, which was the hot trend at the time. Baseball was enjoying a surge in popularity thanks to the Civil War. Players in regiments from New York and other areas in the Northeast, they taught and played baseball with other troops they came across with, and then those players took it home to their towns and cities. We started to see clubs popping up across the country. Leagues would form. And soon after, we'd see the first roots of a national league take shape. If you're interested more in learning about the origins of baseball in America— I would recommend that you go check out episodes one and episode eight of this podcast. So these first baseball cards that popped up sometime between the 1840s and 1860s, they were very simple compared to the modern baseball card that we think of. These early versions were given the name cabinet cards because they were images that one usually showcased on your kitchen cabinet in your home. They were portraits usually of entire teams, and they didn't contain any written information. In fact, they would have fit right in with an image of your family or other keepsakes in the household. Companies weren't making these and selling them to baseball fans. The purpose of this image was to be a collectible. It was a personal or a family treasure to mark a loved one or a group. And there is a lot of debate on whether these cabinet cards should even be considered baseball cards. And I'll share a link in the show notes of an article that shares some different perspectives on the issue, including uh, some quotes from Keith Olbermann, who has some opinions on the topic. But for the sake of the episode, let's count cabinet cards as the forerunner to baseball cards in the collectible, not the mass-produced sense. So this wasn't humanity's first actual baseball card. The first baseball card was the result of an advertising effort, a way to catch the rising popularity of the sport in order to sell goods. In 1866, there were two business associates, Andrew Peck and Irving Snyder, and they decided that they were going to open a sporting goods store in Manhattan, New York. It was one of the first in the country to exclusively sell sporting supplies. The store gained some early success thanks to two inventions that they sold exclusively. One of them was a canvas tennis shoe. It had a rubber sole and two uh, canvas pieces on the top. And then they also sold a two-wheeled inline skate. Both of these became very popular with the public. And as time went on, they became popular for selling baseball equipment as well. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, what's the big deal? It's a sporting goods store. But think about the time period, all right? The store opened a year after the conclusion of the Civil War. The nation was still in shock from a conflict that had really ripped the country in two. And over 618,000 soldiers died. People were tired of conflict. And they were looking for diversions. And at the same time, you had this rise, continued rise in industrialization in the United States. And that created disposable incomes. It created off hours where you worked and then you had time to go and do things for fun. And organized sports were the perfect medium to fill that gap. So baseball stepped into this. And like we said, we saw, you know, people picking up tennis shoes that were more comfortable and allowed people to be able to move better and inline skates. Diversionary things, sports, activities. So Jerry Hausman, he wrote an excellent article in the New York Times about Peck and Snyder, this store that was established by these two guys in Manhattan. And he, I think he really captured uh, the time period and why the sporting goods store was like the the perfect thing to uh, be given birth during this time. He said, quote, although their emotions were still raw from the war, Americans found the rapidly spreading popularity of baseball was a common ground upon which to gather. Men that only a year earlier had tried to kill each other on the battlefield were now teammates on a ball field. Peck and Snyder Sporting Goods seized the moment and combined sports and pictures into one. Baseball fans no doubt loved it. Quote. So here we have Peck and Snyder, a fast growing sporting goods store in New York. And they decided that to help market their products and their store in general, that they were going to start giving out unique trade cards. And trade cards were the 1800s version of a business card that we know today. There was the address of the, you know, the the store, the general information. It would show off featured items that were for sale and it would have some sort of collectible nature to it on the other side of the card to get people to want to pick them up and either keep them in their home somewhere where people would see them or to just not throw it on the side of the road as you went. So in the case of Peck and Snyder, they decided that their trade cards were going to feature something new and exciting they decided to add photos of baseball's first professional teams. In 1869, so we're three years after they opened their store, they released a set of trade cards featuring a team photo of the Cincinnati Red Stockings, baseball's first professional team in the United States. Now, copies of these are extremely rare. Only six of them have been authenticated, And one of them recently sold for $75,000. In 1870, Peck and Snyder decided to release more trade cards that capitalized on this trend of using baseball to be able to market their product. So they came out with this new set. And this new set featured team photos of more professional teams. Uh, The New York Mutuals and the Chicago White Stockings were both featured. They also released a new design in 1871 that featured a team photo of the Philadelphia Athletics. Now, these trade cards with the baseball teams on them, they were a hit. People loved them, and it coincided with the growing interest in the sport. As individuals would hand out these cards on city corners to individuals walking by, it became common for adults and young individuals to crowd around these individuals to get a copy of that trade card, which may feature a new baseball squad for you to be able to check out. Now, as mentioned, other businesses saw the success of these trade cards with baseball teams on the other side, and they began doing the same, even if they didn't sell sports gear. So we saw clothing stores getting into the mix. We saw dining establishments using these. It really became a popular means for people to be able to pick up your card and actually look at it and keep it after you looked at it. And there were other versions that were tried. It wasn't just baseball. Some companies decided to put U.S. presidents on the back of their trade cards. Some people would put exotic animals. Some businesses created comic book characters and would put them back on these trade cards. Uh, They were really forerunners of collectibles in a lot of ways during this time period, during the mid-1800s to late-1800s. So, you know, Peck and Snyder, not to be outdone in their advertising, they were obviously very smart, very on top of trying to market their product in new ways. In 1875, Irving Snyder's little brother designed a catalog for their store. And the name of the catalog was called Peck and Snyder, price list of out and indoor sports and pastimes. And this catalog showed off new consumer sporting goods that had, you know, new items that people may not have tried before. And they would feature things like gymnasium equipment, magic lanterns, tennis rackets. They sold uh, weapons ranging from knives to rifles. And they even got into non-sporting diversionary games like uh, puzzles and banjos and just really all-around hobbies. And these catalogs became very popular. Again, uh, they, they were ahead of the ballgame in terms of being able to advertise their store. And while this, this show is not uh, an episode about Peck and Snyder, I, I think, you know, just taking a quick aside to understand the mindset of these guys and how good they were at advertising their store and just building up an interest, I think, in itself is, is, is quite fascinating. And just on a final point to illustrate that, so they revolutionized the trade card, they revolutionized using catalogs to be able to sell products in 1888. Snyder joined up with retired baseball pitcher, A.G. Spaulding, who you should recognize the last name. He also had aspirations at the time to rule the sporting goods world. Um, the two of them formed a baseball world tour. And the goal of this was to go overseas and popularize baseball. And of course, to sell more goods. So this traveling show, they went to Australia Egypt, England, France, Hawaii, Italy, New Zealand, all around the world promoting baseball. And it really did help the sport grow just exposure wise. They sold a lot of goods in the process. And it was obviously great advertising for Peck and Snyder, but it was also good for AJ Spalding, as we mentioned. Now, According to biographer, Mark Lamster, who wrote a book about Spalding called Spalding's World Tour. I'll put a link in the show notes. Irving had a secondary motive for the trip. (laughs) He wanted to find an international buyer for 30,000 pairs of roller skates that they had in extra inventory. So while the main point of the trip was to promote baseball, there were ulterior motives underneath to move some supply along. Now, 1894 rolls around, so we're six years removed from this baseball tour. 1866 was when Peckensnyder was first set up. It's 1894. Uh, Peckensnyder's stores, they were sold. A.G. Spaulding actually bought them. And he added Peckensnyder's stores into his own sporting goods empire and continued to maximize his reach. So Spalding is a name that we know today, obviously. It's a household name in sporting goods. We see them everywhere and they're still obviously very prominent in terms of selling baseball equipment. So what happened to Peck and Snyder? Well, they did get a pretty big payday from selling uh, the rights to these stores and they kept on working. They used that money to be able to shift their focus to manufacturing. So it ended well for them. It obviously ended well for Spalding. Uh, Peck and Snyder is not a store that you can go to now but uh, certainly lives on as a very important um, innovator in bringing along what we know today as the baseball card. So let's go back to trade cards. We know Peck and Snyder, they're responsible for creating the first actual baseball card featuring a professional team. And they created demand for pictures of athletes to collect and trade. But as mentioned, other competitors saw what they were doing and they tried to copy it. And one industry in particular took this idea of the team portrait, this collectible team portrait, and decided to take baseball card manufacturing to a whole new popularity level. And we will talk about how this hobby continued to skyrocket and turn into the baseball card we know today once we come back from the seventh inning stretch Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. What's the poster say? See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We are talking about the first baseball card. Just to recap, we talked about some forerunners to the modern baseball card. We talked about cabinet cards, which were basically portraits of professional teams that one would play in that were put on someone's cabinet or kept out as a keepsake in one's household. And then we saw trade cards pop up, thanks to Peck and Snyder's store, of using baseball's professional teams in order to sell advertising pieces. And the next evolution of what really became the first baseball card came from the tobacco industry. Now, you may be wondering, well, that's a bit of a jump. Why would cigarette companies get involved with selling pictures of baseball players and teams? Well, we already know that there was a demand for um, baseball-themed memorabilia based on these trade cards. So cigarette brands like Old Judge and Allen & Ginter... They began copying what Peck and Snyder had done with their trade cards, and they also started printing professional team portraits on cards that they would place inside their cigarette packs. Now, these little cards inside the packs of cigarettes, they were always there. Just companies just began using them in a smarter way the cards actually served a functional purpose. They would keep the cigarettes from getting crushed and act as a sort of stiffener inside the package. So you pull out your cigarette, oh, now that card has a collectible on it that you may be interested in looking at and keeping. And you might be willing to pick up cigarettes from these particular brands because of the fact that they come with these items. So in 1886, one of the country's largest tobacco companies, Goodwin Tobacco, they changed things up a little bit they printed the first set of cards that were found in cigarette packs. But there's a difference here. It wasn't just pictures of teams. What they decided to do was they took all 12 players from the New York Giants and they featured them in different packs. And there was one card per pack. So if you want to collect them all, you have to buy more packs of cigarettes. Between 1886 and 1890, Goodwin Tobacco printed cards all over the place. They had 5,000 professional baseball player cards and almost 3,000 variations of those portraits. So there were plenty to collect, and it really helped with sales because, again, people have a dual purpose to purchase these products. They're obviously purchasing cigarettes, but they're also getting a collectible item that they can add to uh, their scrapbook, to their collection. And you can actually find these pretty easily from my research, uh, you know, ones of these late 1800s Goodwin Tobacco Baseball cards. You can find them in hobby shops, collector sites, or even on eBay for about $100 or less. And the reason that they're a little bit cheaper, you know, than what we talked about in terms of the first iterations of cabinet cards or trade cards is because collecting these became a hobby in itself, And a lot of times people wouldn't treat these very well. So most of these cards that are available for on the cheaper side, they come in kind of poor condition. They're faded or they have damage. And the reason that they're damaged is because people would put adhesive on the back of these these cards, these cigarette cards, and they would put them in notebooks so you could see their collection. So, of course, when they're ripped off and sold individually, they cause damage. Now, there were, you know, just like today, these cigarette cards had popular uh, players that were on them that people would want more than others. And some of the in-demand player cards of that time included players like Cap Anson, uh, King Kelly, which we're going to be doing an episode on here in a couple weeks, Buck Ewing, Charles Comiskey, and Charles Haas Radborn. So even out of this, you know, 5,000 different players being on these cigarette cards, you had uh, people starting to favor, obviously, their favorite players and wanting to collect those in particular and getting the different variations of that player. So you see the roots of baseball cards really starting to build here in these cigarette cards. Now, keep in mind that these cards were much smaller than the ones that we know now. They were usually only about mm, two and three fourths inches tall, 2.75 Um, So they're, they're smaller and they would fit in, of course, a cigarette pack. So um, that's really the first iteration of a, you could say the baseball card in terms of individual players that we see today. But baseball cards took another evolutionary leap in the 1930s, thanks to a company called the Gaudi Gum Company. They decided to take a step by selling candy. That included baseball cards in packs of gum. A man by the name of Enos Gowdy, he had been an employee at Beeman's. Beeman's gum was like the popular candy during the late 1800s, early 1900s. He decided that he was going to leave Beeman's and open his own factory, which he did so in Boston, Massachusetts in 1919. He ended up moving the factory to Alston later on. He began producing his own candy. And during the Depression, he came up with the idea of pairing his penny gum with baseball cards. Now, he's still competing with cigarette cards, but he decided to add his own twist to how they looked, and this was important. So basically, when he launched his baseball card with the gum, they were very colorful styles of baseball cards, unlike the others, which often were black and white or were faded kind of versions and the players weren't really smiling or they would show full body portraits. His were different. They featured bright colors like yellows and light blues, and they would have more close-ups of the players from like the chest up or the waist up. And this really helped with the popularity of his brand of baseball card. So these bubblegum cards kind of took over in terms of popularity and they were targeted specifically at children because candy Was obviously something that kids wanted, at least more overtly, as opposed to cigarettes. And so we saw kids start getting into collecting baseball cards more and more as well. Now, World War II rolled around and baseball card production really came to a halt during the conflict because there was a lack of supplies for production. But the culture of collecting was already entrenched, not just with adults and cigarette cards or kids for that matter, let's be honest. (laughs) I'm sure kids collected the cigarette cards too. But now you have bubblegum cards that also were popular. So by the time World War II ended, you already had this American culture of kids collecting cards or collectors collecting these different variations of these players and, and, and assigning a value to them and having these special collections. So baseball card culture was alive and well. And after World War II, we started to see companies pop up whose sole purpose was to produce sports cards. So to illustrate that, in 1948, Bowman was established and they launched sets of black and white cards and their exclusive purpose as a company was to release sporting cards. In 1949, Leaf was established and they separated themselves from Bowman and the cigarette and the gum cards by again changing the design of these cards. And they would feature these beautiful color player cards. And these were the first cards to use like really vivid color after the end of World War II. They were also the first cards to feature prominent African Americans, especially in their younger seasons. So Leaf was responsible for releasing cards uh, by Jackie Robinson and Satchel Paige. In 1951, the Topps Gum Company, keep in mind the Gum Company, was established. And they created what we know of today as the modern baseball card. And I think it's important to note that Topps started as a company that sold candy with baseball cards. They were hopping on what we saw earlier from the Gaudi gum company. Now, Topps had a lot of competition. You know, we, we already talked about several companies that had already been established who sole purpose was to produce sporting cards. So they needed a way to differentiate themselves. And in 1951, they were able to do that thanks to one of their employees who was named Cy Berger. So was at home one day and he was at his kitchen table and he came up with the idea just using some paper and scissors for redesigning what the baseball card looked like. And he submitted the design and it was approved for the upcoming 1952 season. Now, these were some of the hallmarks of the ideas that he submitted. And he is responsible for the baseball card that we know today. So his original ideas that were submitted that were obviously picked up for the 1952 season for tops, he decided to make the card bigger and he set the standard size for what baseball cards still are today. The design that he created included on the front, along with the picture, the players autographed, which would be taken when they signed a contract with tops. It would include the team name and the logo of the team on the front as well. And this is the big differentiator. On the back of the card, you would have the player's height, weight, statistics, and some sort of short biography. And this is the first time that we saw wording added to these, and not just some wording, like an actual uh, background of the player that was put on the back of the card. And this is the birth of the first baseball card that we know and love today, in terms of being a complete collectible item. Now, for his contribution, Sai was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1988. Fleer and Donruss came along in the 1960s because the hobby continued to skyrocket in popularity, and baseball card collecting became both a popular hobby and even a lucrative career for some. And that brings us to today. Baseball cards are at another evolutionary point. All these major companies have at some point in the past 10 years, they've released digital baseball cards, and they have apps and websites that are trying to encourage a new generation of collectors. But overall, the hobby is in decline, at least what we saw from from the 1950s after World War II. But that doesn't mean baseball card collecting is over, not by a long shot. And yes, you could look at baseball card sales overall, and of course they're not going to match. But the idea of collecting cards, that hasn't gone anywhere, and there is a culture of that ingrained in youth today. Just look at the popularity of Pokemon cards, or Magic the Gathering, or Yu-Gi-Oh! The love of collecting items is still there in physical form. And I think it's important to remember that card collecting comes with a love for what's on that card. And that's on all baseball fans to share with their loved ones. You have to share a love of the sport in order to get people interested in baseball and baseball card collecting comes as a result of that. So take the time, go buy a pack of cards for your kid, go take them to a baseball game or just take them out in the yard or to the local park to play some catch those are the moments that plant the seeds of a love for baseball. And in turn, baseball card collecting will live on as long as there is a love for the sport. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, that is the story of the first baseball card in the United States. It's not a straight shot. We saw different evolutions for it to become what we know of today, but at its core, Again, it's about people loving baseball and wanting to collect pieces of the sport that they love for their own personal collections. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Rounders. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball.